You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. For those 1,400 years of modern human history, there was a belief that our solar system looked something like this. That in the middle of the solar system was our world. That we were the center of everything that happens, not just in the solar system, but ultimately in the entire universe. And all of the planets and even the sun moved in orbit around our world that was fixed in the dead center. This geocentric idea. And now, while before that time period, there were some whispers, especially from mathematicians in the East, that maybe that's not quite how the universe works, and maybe there was a fiery ball at the center of the solar system that all of our things moved around, it wasn't until the 1500s when a man named Nicholas Copernicus came along with his very strong chin, and he developed the mathematical formula that proved that, in fact, the world it was not the center of the universe, but our solar system looked a little more like this, that the sun was at its center and all of the planets moved around the sun. Not long after that, Johannes Kepler came along and he, though his chin not so strong, covered it with a very long beard and came along and said that not only do the planets move around the sun, but they do so not in a circular motion, but in more of an ellipse around the sun. And it was about a hundred years after Copernicus that Galileo Galilei came along, which would be like me being named Dill Dilson or Chris Christopherson. But Galileo came along and he had a really nice telescope and he looked through his telescope. He looked at what Copernicus had written down and said, yep, that's right, because not only do we have a formula to show this, but I can see that this is how our solar system works. And Galileo was brought before the church that he loved and was a part of and was tried for heresy because he believed in this Copernican theory of heliocentrism, and they believed that was a heresy punishable by putting him in house arrest for the rest of his life, which is just a reminder to make sure that if you're going to put someone in house arrest for heresy, make sure that it is a theological crime against God and not because he has a nicer telescope than you do. But heliocentrism has been the main theory of how our solar system works now for over 400 years. But you may not know this about me, but I'm a bit of an amateur astronomer, and I've made a new discovery. The no, the world is not the center of the solar system, but neither is the sun. I would like to present to you a new model for our solar system. A model that I believe accurately describes everything that I've experienced over the course of my life. We'll call it a Christocentric model of the solar system because after 36 years of existence, I can say very clearly, based on everything I have experienced, that I am in fact the center of our solar system. Because guys, listen, everything that happens, from the best I can perceive it, happens to me. 
Every feeling that I've ever felt has been a feeling that happens to me. Every conversation that I've ever had has been one that has happened with me as a part of it. And so it only stands to reason that, yes, in fact, I am the center of the universe. And if you want to, you could probably throw your face up there, although it'd be hard to be much cuter than that solar system. But the reality is this is kind of, whether we admit it or not, this is kind of how we all feel. Now, no one's going to step out. Well, some people, I guess, will step out and say that they're the center of the universe. But most of us are not just going to broadcast it or, I don't know, make a model of it and show it to everyone that you know and love. But it's true. We see everything through our own eyes. Our world experience comes only through what we can know and feel and understand. And more often than not, we live like this is true. And there is this desire that's a bit innate in all of us to be the center of everything, to live our lives the way that we want to live them, to move through this world believing that we are the most important thing contained inside of it. And this desire, when it's fed and bred to its fullest, can be utterly dangerous and horrifying. And so this morning, we are going to talk about life alone versus life together. Life as the center of our own universe or life as a part of a shared system that God has placed us in and find that the gospel again has the answer to how to live our lives in a way that is good and satisfying, holy and right and that prepares us for the eternity that God has fixed for us. And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And as always, these are longer passages, so hang with me. But the teacher says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from every man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving after the wind. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we have to dig a little bit in this passage to find any sense of hope or joy. But in the midst of this thought that feels very sad and hopeless, we find nuggets of the beauty of the gospel and also a reminder that it's not good for man to be alone. That not only have you created us with eternity on our hearts, but you have created us with souls that long to be with others. And that we are not as good alone as we ever could be together. So Father, help us to see the beauty of community. To find those places where we are comforted in a world that often seems like it has no comfort for anyone. And bind us together by the power of the gospel. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before he jumps to the danger of a, a life of solitude, the teacher goes on a little bit of what feels like a, a, an adventure here over into the saddest land in the history of the world at the beginning of chapter 4. And I resonate a little bit with how the teacher arrives at this point, because I don't know about you, and maybe you've experienced this before, so I'll just ask. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've just thought one thought too far? Maybe it's when you're laying in bed, right? You're going about to go to sleep. That's when our brains start kind of moving. If you're anything like me, way too fast and way too often that really prohibits me from going to sleep in a very quick way anyway. But you're doing your bedtime routine, right? You get in bed. Maybe you kiss your children goodnight, put them to bed. You turn and kiss your spouse goodnight. You're getting ready to go to sleep. Maybe you're thinking about those last things that you need to prepare yourself for in the morning. All right, what time do I need to wake up? Where's the first place I've got to go in the morning? What are the first tasks that I need to get done? Do I have everything that I need? Is it possible that a solar flare could pop off of the sun and be so large that it could scorch the entirety of the earth, killing everything and everyone except for me, and I would have to live the rest of my days alone by myself on a charred earth that can barely sustain me? And then you just don't go to sleep for about 36 hours. Because one thought can change everything and lead you down this trail. And it feels like that's where the teacher arrives here, right? He's just going through the time to live, time to be born, time to die, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, and again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. What a miserable thing to have to think about. And now he's got to think about them, right? He's seen all of these things. He's remembering all of these things. And now this is what's on his heart and this is what's on his mind. And what an incredible burden to have that knowledge and that thought. 
all of the oppressions, all of the wickedness, all of the brokenness that's been done under the sun. And he paints a very bleak picture as we move through these verses. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. I thought of the dead who were dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive. The better both than is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The teacher here is looking at the world and says, it's such a bad place. That you're better off being dead than alive because at least you don't have to bear this burden. But what would be even better is if you had just never existed at all because then you wouldn't have this weight of knowledge that truly horrible, awful things happen in our world. About a month ago, we watched the new Matrix movie. It was fine. But I remember thinking the same thoughts watching that movie that I did watching the original one, and I didn't have much thoughts about the second or third one because I just really hated them. But the first one was pretty groundbreaking. But I remember watching the first Matrix, watching this new one, and thinking, if I had the option to live inside of the Matrix or be woken up and live in the real world, I feel fairly certain I'm choosing the Matrix. Because look at the real world presented inside of those movies. First off, when you wake up, you are guaranteed to wake up in some sort of pod with a gelatinous goo all over you. And I am really, I don't know about you, trying to live my life in such a way that I never find myself or at least realize that I am in a giant pod filled with gelatinous goo. And then you have to unplug yourself, again, trying to live in such a way that I never have to unplug myself in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And then you get the privilege of going and living in the saddest looking place that's ever existed. Meanwhile, everybody else is just living through their life in a very pretty computer simulation. And yeah, you may be ultimately just a battery powering a very large machine to do whatever it wants to do, but at least it's enjoyable and there's air conditioning. And really, we kind of do this, and there's some statements about that inside the movie anyway, but we kind of do this on our own. We create our own matrixes. Sees? We create a matrix for ourselves that doesn't have to be plural. We surround ourselves with entertainment. We distract ourselves, we occupy our time, and we know that there are bad things going on in the world because we have this constant access to it, but we can compartmentalize and make it so small that even when something feels like it should be a big deal, like world powers attacking each other and people saying things like World War III, that's just a thing we like to throw out a whole lot, but either way, we can hear those words and hear the alarming news that's coming up on a regular basis, not even just what we're going through right now, and we can be alerted to the fact that bad things happen in the world But then we can immediately just change the channel and watch a basketball game or a cartoon or go outside or find something to do to occupy our time. We all know that bad things exist, but we try to only see it in small doses. Remember, I think I was watching the beginning of the Winter Olympics when they first started last month, this month, whatever the date is. And as soon as the broadcast went off air, it switched over to just a national news show, right? Just a one-hour, 10 o'clock national news. I don't watch a whole lot of news. 
And so this was a bit eye-opening for me, literally, because let's say it started at 10 o'clock. By 10.05, I had heard probably seven of the saddest, scariest stories that I've ever heard in my life in a five-minute window. And I am a fast talker. You guys know this. I have no idea how this man said so many words in such little time, and it made me feel so bad. And I don't find myself to be much of an alarmist. But after those five minutes, I thought, well, I guess I better tell my wife and kids goodbye because the world is ending. And that's the kind of world that we live in. If you wanted to, you could find enough bad stories to fill every breath that you utter. But while I don't recommend finding these things and seeing these things necessarily from just loading yourself down with national news, the reality that the world is a bad place more often than not. And that bad things happen and oppressors live and people are oppressed and people are hurt and people are broken. This is something that we all need to see and be aware of. But like the writer here says, this is not a happy business. This is not a fun thing to do, to look at the world, to see it as it really is. But I think that's why we have seasons like Lent. Because as we approach the season of Lent, which begins this Wednesday, it's a reminder to first and foremost look inwardly. But I think we usually stop there in a season like Lent. We've made Lent a very personal thing, which is why we say weird things like don't tell anybody what you're fasting from, like it's some sort of wish that you make on a daffodil that you, or daffodil? Dandelion, that's the one, that you just blow off and you can't tell anybody or it won't come true. And if you tell somebody what you're fasting from, then God's not going to bless it or honor it because we've drastically misread what Jesus was talking about there. But we think about it as such a personal thing that we close our mouths to fasting and praying and we make it deeply into individualistic. But the practices that the season of Lent reminds us to do that are, by the way, not just reserved for that season, but the practices of prayer and giving to those in need and confession and being self-aware of our own sin is not something we're called just to do individually, but we're called to do that corporately. We're called to confess and repent and be aware of our sin and brokenness together as a church, but it's also a universal calling where we have to be aware of the brokenness and the sin in this world and lay it at the feet of our God. Because as followers of Jesus, if we don't see it, if we don't recognize the hopelessness of this world, it can be easy to forget our hope. If we don't see it and we don't recognize the need in our world, we can't be a people who act. If we don't recognize and see the fact that there are people who are not comforted, we can't be the ones to comfort them. And so we need to listen to the words of the teacher here and look at the world as it is and see the oppressions in our world and recognize that it is our calling as people of the gospel to stand in the way and be a light of hope in a world that's hopeless. But the teacher now comes off of that thought. And instead of looking broadly at all the oppressions of the world, he turns his focus inward on another kind of oppression that is smaller, harder to notice, but far more prevalent. This idea of egocentricism of beginning to believe that we are the center of the universe and that we are all we need and that no one around us could offer anything on our behalf. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw all this toil and all skill and work from a man's envy in his neighbor. 
This is also vanity and striving after the wind. And I love that he starts here because this really is where the idea of self-centeredness begins. Ego and vanity, jealousy. Those things are incredibly strong motivators. If you don't believe me, go to a gym, any gym, any place where people are lifting weights. Go to one of those and you will find out that ego and jealousy are really strong motivators. In fact, inside the weightlifting world, there's a term for this called ego lifting, which is where you lift more weight than really you have any business doing because you want people around you to think that you're stronger than you are. And so you might see a guy walk into the gym, and maybe he's a pretty strong guy. Maybe he can deadlift 350 pounds. That's impressive. That sounds good. But then he's in there, and he sees somebody next to him who deadlifts 410 pounds and thinks, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. Look at all the attention this person's getting. I want to be able to do that too. And so the, the first man walks away, and he says, you know, leave the plates here. And our ego lifter walks up. He puts his hands on a bar, a bar that he can't lift, but he's going to try. And he's going to make sure. And so he bends down. He starts his deadlift. He pulls it up. It's feeling good for just a moment. And then he realizes it's too much weight. But you can't let go now because you've already started. And so he begins to feel kind of barfy as he's pulling it all up. And then boom, passes out because he can't lift it. And he never would have tried if it weren't for this idea of being jealous and wanting people to see him in the same way they saw the other person. And I would venture to say Though no matter how humble you may be on a regular basis, even though maybe you don't have the self-esteem that you feel like would lead you to feel this way in a lot of different circumstances, there's probably been at least some moments where you have acted in a way or spoke in a way or even thought in a way that's so radically out of character because you feel jealous or because you feel like your ego has been checked or challenged. These things can be the strongest motivators in the world, but they can also be destructive. But they can be destructive in a way that's not easily noticeable. Because the teacher here, as he's talking about this person who is toiling and finding all of his skill and work coming out of envy and jealousy of his neighbor, the result is actually not bad. Because you start looking through all of these things that the, the teacher is talking about and the person who is motivated by jealousy and egocentricism and trying to live life on his own kind of starts to, to get rich. Starts to achieve the things that he wants to achieve. Starts to fill his house and rising up from prison to the throne. All of these things are working out for them because if you're motivated by jealousy, if you're motivated by ego, if you really just want to put yourself forward, chances are you probably can at least achieve some measure of that. And an egocentric, jealousy-driven life really can pay off in a very material way. But no matter what you earn, what can you really gain with a life like that? He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He says, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. 
And we can go on there, but the writer is saying, listen, if you want these things, you can have them. You can lay hold to all of these riches, but here's the problem. Your eyes are never going to grow satisfied. You're never going to get to a point where you feel like you've actually arrived. You're going to have two hands full, but absolutely no satisfaction. And the summary here is that this is all meaningless. And that life without community is an unhappy business. And that sad conclusion comes in verse 16. It says, There was no end of all the people, all whom he had led. Yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is all vanity and striving after the wind. And so we see the story of this man who felt like he had everything he needed in and of himself. He was going to get rich for himself. He was going to get powerful for himself. He was going to earn and achieve everything he can for his own merit. And all of his life, he just toiled and toiled and worked and worked and broke his body down. And he gained all the things that he thought he wanted and then found more things that he wanted even more and had to work and toil even more. And the whole summary of it is all of that was meaningless and striving after the wind. But again, as we've seen each week, and I will utter this phrase almost every single Sunday, there's a better way. There's a better way to live. And the summary of the writer of Ecclesiastes here goes hand in hand with the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then the restoration of all of that throughout the gospel, this reminder and this promise that we are designed to live in community and our eternity will be communal, so we better start living that way now. And as we look at the story of this man who was constantly living for himself, we see the juxtaposition there of the one who lives in community. And as we look through chapter 4, we find a few reasons why life in community is better than a life centered around me. The first thing is that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that community itself is a good reward. And I love that the word good is used here as the writer talks about this idea of community. Because as we look through the selfish life, we see a lot of things that look excellent. We see a lot of things that look amazing. We see this idea of wealth, and there's no limit to the amount of wealth that this person can gain for themselves. But as the gain comes, so does the desire for more. But the result of a communal life is smaller. In verse 6, it says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. He also goes on to say that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And again, in comparison, that word good seems very small. It doesn't seem like it matches up to the fullness of everything that the other person was able to gain or able to achieve. But even though the communal life is a smaller life than the selfish one, it is a good and satisfying life. Because you're not only able to have your needs met, but it allows you to enjoy life. 
And not only does it allow you to enjoy life, but it allows you to enjoy life with others and not spend every waking moment of your life toiling to the bone. I told you last week that I feel like God has been preaching this book to me for the past couple years. And there was one particular instance that we had to make a choice about some of these kind of things as a family. Because a few years ago, when the church wasn't doing very well financially, we had to make some really important decisions from a leadership standpoint on pay and and rent and all these kind of things. And so as we were cutting out all salaries as a part of the church, that was going to leave me in kind of a weird spot because I get a salary from the church. And being bivocational, I've always got something else going, but the other job is a ministry position as well with a Christian Learning Center. And we were crunching our numbers, and they didn't work. It wasn't going to work to be able to back completely off of the salary here at the church and still work at the CLC. Something else was going to have to happen. And so we were starting to look at different things, and I had an offer to be able to interview for a job that was probably going to be pretty lucrative. There was probably more money than I'd ever made in my life. But it was going to require a lot more hours than I've had to put into a job in quite some time. And it was going to require probably a lot of travel and a lot of time away from the family. And we sat down and we prayed about it. And we just sought what the Lord wanted us to do in that situation. And we just really felt pressed that as a family, it was more important that we were together than having all the things that we thought that that job could bring. And it was tough. There were a couple of years where things were just really tight. We had to change the way we lived in a lot of ways. There were a lot of seasons where it felt very uncomfortable. But like we've already talked about, it was a season where life was hard, but life wasn't bad. Because we were together, and it was good. And I saw God provide in so many different ways. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here. He says, listen, if you give your life to others, if you give your life to community and live life together, you may not have two hands full at any point in your life. You may never have everything that you think you want, but you will find satisfaction. You will find joy. You will find peace because this is the way that you were meant to live. In our relationships, in our lives, We can't let the pursuit of more steal us away from the joy of having less, but living more with the people that we love. And this is the call that we have as followers of Christ, to be willing to give and sacrifice for one another so that we can have that life together as the people of God. And as we'll see, as I'm going to reference later on a passage that Zach has already referenced today, That life that God has given us as a church family is a good life. So community is a good reward. But also community provides care. I don't know exactly when this happened, but, and then there's a lot of me stories today. Sorry about that. I guess it fits on a Sunday when I would start with a picture of myself as the center of the universe. <laughs> There'd just be a lot of me. But this one, this one should end exciting for you if you've been waiting for a time for, for me to be in a, a not-so-great situation. So I was, I'm going to say, either eighth or ninth grade, old enough to be home alone, that my parents would have left me home alone, but also to be able to do some things on my own. And so I was cleaning my closet. Well, say I was cleaning my closet. I was in my closet. This would be the moment where my mom would start to think that this is a suspect story that might not be true because just me cleaning my closet when I didn't have to and no one was home doesn't seem likely. So it's probable that I was reaching for something on a top shelf to get out. I don't know. We're going to say cleaning closet because it makes me, makes me look good. And it's also a good example for my children who need to go home and clean their closet. 
So I was standing up on a stool, reaching something on the highest shelf, right? And I shifted my weight just a little bit to the side. And when I did, the stool became unstable. And I fall off of the stool. And I fall off of the stool in such a unique way that I land butt first inside of a laundry hamper, just fold up like a cartoon. And as I do, the stool folds over and they meet together to where the stool, now in an A form, has me pinned inside of the laundry basket and I cannot escape. I can't do anything. I try to shake. I try to push myself over. I try to do everything humanly possible, but I am literally stuck inside of a laundry hamper pinned in by a stool and no one is home. And I'm just yelling for any help whatsoever because I don't want to die in a laundry basket. I mean, I don't want to die, but I really don't want to die in a laundry basket. What a ridiculous way to leave this world. And so finally, about 15 minutes or so later, my dad gets home and he hears me and then he runs upstairs, finds me in a laundry basket, probably laughs at me because of course you would because I'm in a laundry basket and then helps me out. But there was no way that I could have ever gotten out of that situation alone and I would have died in a laundry basket. In verses 10 and 11, actually let's back up to 9. He says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls in a laundry basket and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? It is always better to have help nearby. It's always better to have people in your life who when you fall can pick you up, who when you're cold can keep you warm. See, selfish ambition will lie to us and teach us that I don't need anybody else because if I work hard enough, if I accomplish enough things, if I do enough things, if I strengthen myself as much as I can possibly be strengthened, then I won't need anybody and I can live my life alone. It can cause us to believe that a selfish life is a secure life. But the reality is, is you need other people. And I need other people that like the Bible says in those very early chapters, it is not good for us to be alone. And we need to realize this before it's too late. The worst time to realize that there is care in the midst of community is when we don't have any. The worst time to realize that we need help is when everyone else is gone. And so we can't be the kind of people who wait until we need a hand to hold one, who wait until we need other people in our lives to begin to reach out, who need a friend and then find that there's no one around because we've lived our lives in such a way that we've pushed them all off. The community that God has called us to live in is designed to help us when we can't help ourselves to pick us up when we can't stand. And we can think about so many passages, all of the one another in passage, one other passages in Scripture, over 50 different ones. We can go and look at the stories of men carrying their friends up on the roof to lower them down to see Jesus. 
of Jesus, the Son of God, asking his disciples to pray for him and pray with him and stay awake with him because he was overwhelmed by the work that he was called to do. We can go time and time again and see that message affirmed over and over again that you need one another. Because in the midst of community, there is care, and we are all, at some point in time, going to need our brothers and sisters to lift us up. But also we find that in community, that it gives us strength. Again, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a sad one. And it paints a really bleak, really dark picture of life. And the way that the book of Ecclesiastes is written is it's a reminder that this life can absolutely break anyone. That it can cause even the strongest of people to fall apart completely. And so what we do is we make religion, our religion specifically, one that we feel like is enough to just earn a better life. And so if your marriage is bad, well, then you just need Jesus. If you've had a traumatic childhood, well, then you just need Jesus. If work is hard, then you just need Jesus. You don't have enough money in your bank account, you just need Jesus. You start going to church, you start praying, you have enough faith, you go through baptism, then everything in life is going to be good and everything in life is going to be better. But we know that's not really the case, right? But let's just look at Hebrews chapter 11. This beautiful passage that talks about the importance of faith. In this way, faith looking towards the Jesus that hadn't even been born into the world yet. And we talk about Abraham and talk about Rahab, and they have these beautiful stories of redemption and God doing amazing work in their life. Moses, who accomplished so much for the kingdom of God. But the last half of this chapter, the tone changes, and this is what life looked like for the people of God and would continue to look like for the people of God moving forward. In verse 32 of Hebrews 11, it says, What shall more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Man, it looks like we're doing really well. We're made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But then in that same breath, some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should be made perfect. That was life for some people following God. We know how the life of Christ came to its climax in the gospel story. We know the story of each of the disciples as they lost their lives or their homes for the sake of the gospel. We can go back and trace human history and see so many men and women and children who put their faith in Jesus only to find that life with Christ was not necessarily easier and in so many cases was even harder. 
And this is why Christians are called to live in community. This is why we're called to live life together because life as a whole is enough to break you. But the Christian life can be so hard and overwhelming that there is no way that we can live it alone. And we see a foreshadowing of that here in the book of Ecclesiastes. As he tells us that a cord of three, a threefold cord, is not quickly broken. We use this imagery in weddings a lot, and there's certainly some, some use for that there. But this passage is just talking about the beauty of any sort of community founded under the beauty of God-ordained life together. A cord of three is not easily broken, and neither is a unified church. Neither are brothers and sisters in Christ who stand together and fall together. It was the communal relationship of the church with Christ that enabled men and women and children to stand persecution and to look martyrdom in the face and walk into the hands of God. They were able to stand with one another and for one another and know that they were part, as the writer of Hebrews says, of this great cloud of witnesses. And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to lay down our selfish ambition and pride and to choose to do life the way that God has provided for us through Jesus. And that's together because like iron sharpens iron, we sharpen one another. We're able to build one another up and provide strength for one another. When you're weak, I can be strong. When I'm weak, you can be strong. And we never have to worry about one of the cords breaking because the rest of the cord is there to hold everything together as we go through some of life's most difficult seasons as one body knit together by the power of the Spirit through the beauty of the gospel. And Zach has already referenced this passage. And I think it was so fitting as we look at the picture of this early church, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where they were going. There was no textbook for all of this. They didn't know how to fully live life together, and so they just believed the gospel and lived. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I love as we see this early picture of the church, the first Christians meeting together. In this passage that defines the church, there's not a single name mentioned. It's the people. It's all of them. Together with the apostles. Praying together, fellowshipping together, serving together, giving to one another, making sure that anyone and everyone who needed to be taken care of was taken care of. They had all that they needed, and yet from the outside world, they were giving up so much more. And yet they found satisfaction. 
They found hope. They found joy. They found provision all in the hands of their brothers and sisters in Christ as they lived life together under the gospel. Everything in this world is trying to convince us that we don't need anyone, that you are the center of your universe, and that you can and should have everything that you want. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that none of that will ever be enough. That you'll have two hands full, but a heart that's empty and longing. But the promise that we have in the gospel is if we're willing to let go of the more for the sake of our brothers and sisters and the sake of our world, we will receive back more than we could ever imagine in love, joy, affection, and satisfaction as we live life the way that God has called us to live. In a world where so many people find no comfort for them, we will find comfort, peace, hope, joy, and love. And the reminder that this is what eternity looks like as we practice that in the here and now. And so we talk a lot about community, and that's a good catchword in the church. But let's be the kind of people and the kind of church who take that calling to live life together seriously, to find the good reward, to find the comfort and care that we need, to give the comfort and care that others need, and to be strengthened day after day by this sweet and beautiful place that God has put us in where we can live life together as a church.